0: Welcome one and welcome all back to Tell a Friend. Now I'm delighted to bring to you this extra special episode featuring my interview with the remarkable Roy Saw. Roy Saw is a prominent Guyanese activist who was one of the early leaders of the British Black Power movement. Saw was part of a radical anti-racist generation that included the likes of Obi Igbuna, Michael X, and Stokely Carmichael. He is most famous for his educational yet humorous Hyde Park Corner speeches. Europe and gone to black
1: people's country yes. and oppress them yes, and enslave them yes. and kill them. But nowhere in European history or black people's history will you ever read that black people left their country and came to European country and kill them or oppressed them.
0: Saw used his speeches to condemn the imperial activities of the West and took far-right hecklers head-on. In this extended interview, Roy reflects on his life as an activist, and we explore themes such as black radicalism, political blackness, and the effectiveness of creating broad-based alliances. I hope you enjoy.
1: My name is Roy So. I'm in Australia at the moment, but I live in London. I am 86 years old, and I'm here on holiday.
0: So, for the first question, I was wondering if you could talk to me about what it was like growing up in Guyana, and your experience of moving to Britain.
1: Well, I come from a sugar estate background, and growing up on the sugar estate in Guyana, or in like the West Indies, there was no future other than cutting sugarcane, so the profits can come to Britain. I went to school, had a reasonably good education, and Trying to get a job when I left school at 16, 17 was difficult. I wanted to become a teacher, but I had to become a Christian, and my mother refused, who was a Hindu, not to change your religion just for a job. And we started to indulge in other activities in the country. I, came, I left Guyana and I came to Britain. I wanted to study a competency. So I left in 59, and I came to Britain.
0: When you moved to Britain, what was your initial reaction?
1: My first experience was the the friend of mine who was supposed to come and meet me hadn't turned up up to now. And I was sitting at Victoria Station sitting in the cold because I didn't have any coats, or not have any warm clothing and about the night, a Jamaican porter who was passing all the time and saw me, said to me, what brother? Like you uh, know, sanded. And I explained to him and he gave me lodgings for the night. And that was my first experience
0: in Britain. How long into your stay in Britain was it before you became involved in anti-racism activism?
1: Well, I became involved when I started looking for a job. And um, I got the experience of you couldn't get a job because of your colour and whatever job was available was very mean and cleaning job. My first job was cleaning toilets at the Mount Royal Hotel in Marble Arch at six pounds a week, three pounds for rent and I had three pounds to live on and to support my family back home.
0: What was your first encounter of racism in Britain?
1: My first encounter was when I went for my job, and the agency said, um, oh, you are a person of color, so it's going to be very difficult. And I sat there when she made a lot of phone calls. And while she was phoning, she was saying to the person of the audience, oh, he's not really black, he's sort of semi-colored, he's not really black. And that's when I knew that the color was very important.
0: Now obviously in Guyana um you must have experienced some racism or hostility towards you. What would you say was unique about the racism you were experiencing in britain
1: well in the in the Guyana in those days, a colonial country, most of the top jobs were taken up by Europeans on the sugar state because that's where I was with my my parents live on the sugar estate, and uh, The white man was a master, and he was also everything. And jobs are determined by not only your colour, but determined by your race. And that's why, because my father was brought from India as an indented worker, he was renovated to the lowest form of the jobs on the sugar state.
0: And how would you say your experience of living in colonial Guyana influence your activism? Well, it didn't, because it was a
1: different form of racism. I didn't realize it was racism until I stayed in prison, and where you were well judged by just your color, not even by how you spoke, or what degree you had, or what was your background. And it was two different forms of discrimination.
0: In my uh, research, I've been looking at Stokely Carmichael's speech at the Dialectics of Liberation, and um, did you actually attend uh, that speech?
1: I attended the one that was at the wrong house when he came. He he was speaking at the wrong house, and I was asked by him to join him. And um, I joined him, and we spoke on the platform, and then after that we spent some time together and we compared
0: experiences in the states and compared in Britain. And how would you say Stokely Carmichael's presence in Britain influenced the Black Power movement?
1: Well, it was um sharing experience with our brothers in the States by people like Stokely and Malcolm X when he came over here. And the similarity was there, but in the States it was much more rigid. And um, we compared notes and then Muhammad Ali came and We met him and we spent time together. We exchanged views and news and we kept
0: in contact with him as time went along. And in your estimation, would you say Stokely Carmichael's arrival in Britain marked the start of the Black Power movement over here or would you say that it was just something that empowered it even further?
1: There was an organisation called the West Indian Standing Conference, which was the only black organization, Caribbean organization that existed. And we got together as a group, listened to what Stokely and Malcolm had to say, and from there tried to organize the black community. But it wasn't easy because there's so many islands people coming from, everybody had different views because people didn't want to rock rock the boat because they wanted the jobs, they wanted to send money back for their family, and therefore we just listened to what they had to say. But it was influential what was happening in the States, and then we realised that it was happening here as well.
0: So obviously you became involved with Michael X and Obi Igbuna when you started the Racial Action Adjustment Society. Could you talk to me a bit about how that started and your recollections of the two men?
1: Well, I got a scholarship to go to Russia to study Marxism. And when I went there, I realised that people were discriminating against black people. While I was there, every morning, there was a black student floating in the Moscow River, killed by subs. And when we complained to the chancellor of the university. He said that it didn't happen and Russia was a socialist country and they don't have racism. And I formed an organization called Afro-Asian Students Association. And um, I was deported from Russia back to England. When I came to England, came back, I continued speaking in Hyde Park. And that's where I met a group of people who said to me that I should get in contact with Michael because Michael X was forming an organisation and had an organisation and they were doing a lot of campaigning and that's how I got involved with
0: the Racial Adjustment Action Society. And what was your first impression of Michael when you met him? My first impression was um,
1: I didn't know him, I didn't know anything about him, but he was... um, articulating the problems because he had lived in Notting Hill Gate, in the heart of where the problems were, the riots took place. And I listened to him carefully and I was very impressed with what he had to say. And when I joined the organization, I spent my time traveling around the whole country, holding meetings and keeping meetings to promote the organization.
0: And when you came back from Russia, from studying, and you knew that you wanted to get involved in anti-racism activism uh, here in Britain. Did you have a strategy, or were you just learning as you went along?
1: No, I didn't have any strategy. I didn't know anything. I didn't know very much. And um, I just listened to what was square. Well. But what I did try to do, I tried to get hold of the newspapers and read. And because it was funny, because when I came back from Russia, And I applied for jobs. People thought I was a Russian spy. So I didn't get a job. I didn't get an interview. So I was unemployed for a long time. And while I was uh, unemployed, it was winter. It was cold. I hadn't got the money to keep the heat in. So I decided to spend some time in the library. And it was there where I came into contact with British history by reading the history books. And I was so fascinated by it, I spent all my time in the library keeping warm, and reading history. And that's where I became more and more involved in the movement in Britain.
0: And could you talk to me about some of the books you were reading, some of the texts that you were being exposed to?
1: I can't remember their names right now, but they were all about the colonial movement and the colonial history. Of how they went to Africa, they say to help. How they went to India to help, and all the countries they supposed to went, to, they went to help. Were all colonial countries, and people were leaving the country looking for jobs elsewhere. And I wasn't very impressed with it. And when you meet students from these countries in England and you hear about the experiences, you know it was all a lie and I became more and more interested in the British
0: history. Would you say that um, other black people in Britain at the time had this same level of awareness of colonial violence that was going on in the colonies?
1: They didn't have the same commitment because I think when I formed the Free University for Black Studies, it was the first time some of my brothers were getting a taste of black history in the sense of what was happening in different countries. And because we came primarily to look for jobs, to work, to send money back home to our family, we weren't really interested in history. But because of the circumstances of our living and the way we were treated by the white people in the country, that is why we became more and more interested as time
0: went on. And the British press at the time, in uh, both the 60s and 70s, they became quite fixated with both yourself and Michael X. Why do you think that was?
1: Because Michael X had a reputation which I didn't know anything about and uh, wanted to know how he became involved in politics. And because he was associated with Malcolm X, well, he wasn't associated with them in the sense that they were any organized group or anything. They, they were just, when um, Malcolm came to Britain and they went to a meeting in the countryside, Malcolm checked in and said, My name is Malcolm X and my brother Michael is here, Michael X. And that's how he got the name Michael X.
0: Would you say that at the time there was unity within the British Black Power movement. Did you feel like a united front, or did it feel like it was segmented into different groups?
1: Well, there wasn't any organized organisation called Black Power. It was just something that came afterwards. It wasn't a conscious factor. The Black Power concept was formed in the United States, but the racism, which was similar to both countries, have different forms, and our racism was much more, a little subtler than the States, which is very, very daring and very lousy.
0: And would you say the subtlety um, about racism in Britain, would you say that was a more insidious experience than maybe something more overt?
1: No, it wasn't, it wasn't comparable because we didn't have the kind of discrimination that our brothers in the States were going through. We were discriminated against, but in housing and trying to get jobs because in those days when you went to the billboards you will see rooms to let sorry no black dogs and cats welcome. Rooms to let sorry no blacks Irish welcome. And this was the kind of sign posted. Whereas in the States it was much more blatant racism than it was in England. There was no comparison,
0: That there was racism taking place. Obviously when you were experiencing this uh, level of racism in housing, education and employment, did you feel that the white working class in Britain were the ones who were initiating this racism or did you think that they had been fed it from uh, the state level? Did you think it was a top-down process?
1: No, because we continue to campaign. We continue to hold meetings where black people lived in their prison to to bring about that consciousness that even some of them didn't even realize it was racism. Because, I mean, for example, I was walking the streets one day and a white guy said to me, you nigger, go home. And I said, so who are you talking to? And by the time I turned, he just punched me in the face and broke my teeth. And there was that kind of racism taking place at social events, like when you're coming from the cinemas or when you're going on the trains. And the atmosphere in those days, well, when you see a black brother you went to and says, Hi, how are you? Because it was a kind of reassurance and, and knowing that you have somebody there next to you. There was no comparison. In America, it was much more blatant and much more rigid.
0: Now, a phenomenon that I've uh, seen whilst studying the British Black Power Movement is that you had um, the involvement of Black Africans, Black Caribbeans, uh, the South Asian community, even the um, Chinese in some uh, circumstances. How did you define Blackness?
1: To me, black in those days were defined by the fact that you were non-white. Because we don't use the name colored and people of color. If you're not white, you're black, because black is the opposite to white. And that's where we developed the word black to encompass all non-European people. They were Chinese, Indian, West Indians, or what.
0: This definition of political blackness, do you think that it's still valid for today?
1: It's valid more so today because when you look at the young blacks in Britain, they don't know where they're going. They don't know who they are. That's why we always said you either adopt or you adapt. If you adopt, you become an Anglo-Saxon, an Asian Saxon, or an Indian Saxon. If you adapt, you adapt because you wanted to. It's a question of the individual deciding what they want to be.
0: Now, in the uh, 60s and 70s, did you feel that there was a generational divide in um, the, your approach towards anti-racism? Did you feel like the older generation pushed back against your radical activity or were they quite welcoming of uh, the radicalism? Oh,
1: no, they were quite quite welcoming because they were supportive and at least supporting us in the sense that they would buy you a cup of coffee or they would buy you a sandwich or something. Because they were in a position where they did menial jobs as well. So there wasn't a lot of money around in the community. But we still, whatever we had, we shared with each other and survived. Because when I formed the Free University for Black Studies, Mondays we used to do Asian studies. Wednesday we did African studies. And Friday we did West Indian Studies. And for the first time, black people were coming together under one umbrella at the Free University for Black Studies. And we operated from Nothing Hill Gate.
0: Did you ever feel a sense of um, divisions between the West Indian community? So between Jamaicans, between Trinidadians, did you ever feel that?
1: No, we never that 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 was never an issue. That that didn't play a part in any aspect. As a, once you were a people of once you were black, and you know people by the accent, that what part of the West is they from. We had more uni- unity then than I would say that we've ever had in Britain.
0: And did you have um, radical white people involved in the movement?
1: We had one or two priests who were involved in supporting. They weren't actively involved, but they were very supportive. Because when I decided to form the Free University for Black Studies, a priest recommended that I go to the World Council of Churches and put my case so I could get a grant to start here. University, and I went to Switzerland. I spoke at the World Congress of Churches, and they gave me two thousand pounds, which I came back and bought a lot of books with. As a sergeant, that's how we started the free universities of black studies.
0: Were you aware of the level of state surveillance that was being conducted on Black Power activists?
1: <clears throat> no, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. We weren't aware that we were being followed because. We didn't have a concept that our issue, which was just basic human dignity and the human rights we were fighting for, would attract the police. And we never thought about security and the British police involved. But we only found that out in latter years as time
0: came by. Yeah, because something that's amazed me is I've been looking at special branch uh, files on Black Power. And it was so meticulous the way that they were. They profiled everyone. They had huge amounts of details of everyone involved in the different groups, their background, their political views. So it really did seem like black power was posing a threat to the British state. Did you feel that you were that threatening force?
1: No, we didn't. Well, we didn't know that we were being watched. And one day I was speaking in Hyde Park. And the lady said to me, why don't you go home? And then I detected she was a foreigner by not having an English accent. And I said, well, where are you from? She said she was from Scotland. I said, well, why don't you go home? She said, I am British. And I returned by saying, I am British too, but maybe you're a British, I'm a British subject, and you're a British object. And she hit me with her bag. And I thought, this is funny, funny going on and the police were there and they do nothing about it, they didn't do anything and we continued. And then one Sunday I finished speaking and um, I was arrested by the police and taken down to a high park police station where I was charged under the Race Relations Act for inciting racial violence and the law that I was charged under was the law that came out to protect us the black community, in the first place. And all I said was somebody said to me, if you were in South Africa, how would you solve the problem? And I said, oh, very easy. They said, how do you mean easy? And I said, every white house, every white family has a black cook, two ounces of rat poison, and you'll solve the problems overnight. And I was charged for inciting racial violence. Found guilty, sent to prison for three months. A friend of mine read about it in the newspapers and the Times, and he flew all the way from Sweden, and came and paid my fine, so he got
0: out. And you mentioned there that um, the same legislation that was being brought in to protect black people was actually being used against you.
1: That law was passed in 62, and in 1965, when the Harold Wilson government came to power, they reviewed the Act and made it more stringent. Oh, it's a a very peculiar time in those days. And I went on a few television programs and made my point because the British people didn't understand that we all came from the Caribbean and the colonial countries with British passports. I remember I was on the David Frost program and somebody asked me, but you people, when you come here, you live on the dole. I said, but we are entitled to live on the dole. They said, how are you entitled when you have never work? I said, look, I came with a British passport. So I took my passport out, and I started to read, and it says, Her Majesty's Government Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, request and in an email for Her Majesty the Queen to allow the bearer, that's me, to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such national assistance and protection may be necessary. I put the word national in, and
0: I had 6 million people the next day looking at their passports. And your arrest at Hyde Park corner that you were just describing, was that your first interaction with the British police?
1: Yeah, that was my first interaction when I was arrested.
0: How were the British police responding to the black uh, migrants coming in, the black and South Asian communities?
1: Well, at that time we were here for a couple of years. But um, what they used to do when they arrest black people, especially in Nottingham Gate, they used to take them to Harrow Road Police Station and put their heads in the toilet and pull the chain and say that's where niggas should go. They were very hostile to black people, very, very hostile, because they thought we were all drug dealers and they didn't realize that, you know, we had different scope of lifestyle and we may have come from the same country. But we didn't, we were not drug dealers or criminals as they, they thought we were.
0: And do you remember, um, or did you ever experience being stopped and searched in the street?
1: No, not personally, I haven't. But you... I've known a lot
0: of people who've been stopped and searched. So you were aware of the hostility from, uh, the police at the time?
1: Uh, oh yes, they hostility was there. Because, um... When we had our organisation, we used to give our telephone numbers to people in case they have problems, they should ring us. And I used to get phone calls, 10 in the night, 11 in the night, 1 in the night, where black brothers will be arrested and they are entitled to one phone call
0: and they would ring me to come and bail them out. What was your recollection of the Black Power Movement?
1: Well, they tried to organise... Black people into group, into as an organized group, so they can fight for their rights. They advocate the history, the movement, and where we are from where we came. I think they did a bloody good job, and I hope they continue to do it now. Because it's the next generation. I mean, I'm 86, so my generation more or less is all gone. And I think The black power movement did a lot of good by making black people more conscious of the fact that where they come from and where they're going, if they want to go where they want to go.
0: Okay, I'm going to backtrack now and speak a little bit about Speaker's Corner. So you mentioned the case of uh, the lady from Scotland who was hitting you over the bag. How receptive were audiences to your anti-racist and anti-imperial speeches?
1: Well, I think um, at one stage, the newspaper said I had the largest crowd at any one time you come to Hyde Park. Um, Lord Soper was also a speaker. And um, my crowd uh, used to be very, very loud in support of what I said. Because I added a bit of humor into my political speeches in order to stay, keep people, because I used to speak for three hours, four hours, and nobody would stand there unless they had something interesting to listen to. And I spoke for, once I was in England, in London, I was there every Sunday from three to six, three hours every
0: Sunday. And I had the largest crowd when I was speaking. And would you say the majority of your audience were in support of what you were saying, or did you feel that some people were there to just counteract what you were saying?
1: Oh, a few people tried to interrupt, to heckle me. But I love hecklers, because with hecklers, you can get a laugh out of something he's not going to say, which is stupid, and therefore you will take whatever he says. If he has a, a genuine question, which deserves a historical answer, You will do that once you know the history. But nine times out of ten, they were only asking questions to ridicule you and challenging your legality in the country as if
0: they were the police. Did you ever feel physically threatened by uh, some of the individuals who were heckling you?
1: No, I didn't feel threatened because there were a lot of black people around, a lot of black brothers around who always surrounded me when I was speaking. So I felt secure in that respect, that no one, I think, would dare come up and physically try to do anything to me, because there were a lot of black brothers around.
0: And what kind of platform would you say Speaker's Corner offered for activists like you?
1: Well, it gave us a chance to express our feelings and express our frustration, because we didn't have uh, any newspapers, we didn't have any racial programmers. And the only way you can make contact in Britain is by public public vehicles that were there. And we didn't have any of that, so Hyde Park provided us with that beginning. And not only did it provide us with that beginning, it also provided us with recruiting more of our brothers to the organization because some of them had never heard of it before themselves. And therefore, they came very, very active after joining and becoming part of it.
0: And you mentioned just a second ago about how you'd use humour in um, your speeches and especially when hecklers were heckling you. Why do you think it was important to use humour in your speeches and how do you think they helped what you were saying?
1: Well, out of the answer to humours, you can get a political point to make. For example, I remember once an American said to me, why don't you go back to India? And I said to him, I'm not from India, I'm from the West Indies. And I said, where are you from? He said he's from the States. I said, why don't you go back? But then you can't go back because you have no culture. And I said to him, well, what's your culture? A culture, he said, it's a little bit of yours, a little bit of mine, a little bit of everybody. And I jokingly said, well, if you were to take those little bit out from you, what would you have left? And It was a big
0: joke. And where did you learn to speak publicly? Where did you get this um, ability from? Because obviously you'd have needed to be very confident. You'd have needed to attract audiences and entertain audiences. Where did you learn this from?
1: I learned it from Hyde Park because I was working at a Cumberland hotel. And one Sunday I finished work, finished washing dishes. And I walked across because I saw all these people. And I saw a black brother speaking. And that's where I stood up and I said to him, can I say a few words, please? So he said, yeah, where are you from? I said, I'm from British Guyana. So I went and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm from Guyana. Somebody shouted, go home, Ghana is independent. And I couldn't say anything else because I realized I didn't know anything. And then I came down and I started reading. I walked the streets, I picked up a newspaper I read. I go to the libraries, I borrow the books I read. And that's where the the confidence came from because I did a lot of reading and I had the knowledge from the books that I was reading and dealt with the
0: questions at the time it was being asked. When you were giving your speech to the Speaker's Corner, did you feel that you had a duty to educate people, to entertain people, or were you using your speeches just to shock the audiences.
1: I was using the speeches to inform people of the past. I was using the speech to inform people the reason why we came to Britain, the reason why their ancestors came to our countries, and their background to the connection between the West and the East. And that's all I was doing, because I thought knowledge is power, and with power you can do anything you want.
0: Did you feel that some of the anti-racist and anti-imperial messages within your speeches did you feel that they were censored out of the mainstream media in Britain?
1: I don't know what was the reaction out there, but I knew that a lot of people did a lot of tapes, and the tapes were being sent to different organisations, and um, even to the West Indies. Back in the West Indies, other tasteful were sent and play there, but I didn't. I don't know what other effects they would have had.
0: And what would you say was your politics at the time? Did you align to any of the political parties in the UK?
1: I wasn't going to take part in any political parties because I found they all had anti-black sentiments with them and black principles between them. They didn't stand up to any struggles for any. Really black groups of black people, because they were ridiculed by both, both main political parties. And that's why we didn't take part fully with it. Later on, a few brothers started to join the Labour Party. But I mean, no, we didn't trust the parties to do anything for us.
0: So obviously today we have the Labour Party, who are kind of um, billed and presented as the anti-racist party and the social justice party. Do you find it ironic that they've been able to change their perception in that way?
1: Well, I don't know if they have their policies have changed, because look how long it took them to get black councillors to join the, the black people to join the, the Labour Party and to become councillors and to become MPs. Because I remember when um, Bernie Grant wanted to start the black group the the Labour Party. He was um, humbled upon because he was accused of being trying to divide the the create division between black and white. But I don't, I don't believe in the the political parties as far as race relations are concerned.
0: Yeah, because obviously um, now we've been seeing a lot of the racist abuse that has been um, given to MPs such as Diane Abbott and um, Dawn Butler. Do you think that um black women have a unique experience of racism? I
1: think any black person, male or female, if they know their history, should stand up out there and speak out aloud. Should get involved in whatever they're doing and get involved to bring about a better multicultural society to live in. Because at the end of the day, we are there, we are part of the society in which we live, and we should make our contribution equally, given the opportunity to so.
0: And uh, during the Black Power movement, did you feel that women were at the forefront of the movement, or how do you think issues of sexism and misogyny were also being dealt with within the Black Power movement?
1: Well, you can't can't judge our movement by that of European standards, because we were a different group of people here, from all over the Caribbean, all over the... Commonwealth or the former colonies, and um, our approach was different. Nobody was in the forefront. People just happened to be there and made their contribution. When the time came for speaking out, you had a Roz Howells who stood up. You had a civil Phoenix. You had all these people who were doing a lot, a lot of community work, which was not even recognised. But we knew they were going on, and therefore, whether they were women or men they all made a contribution to a cause.
0: Now, one of the key differences that I've personally seen when uh, comparing the American movement and the British movement, is that the American movement was more um, accepting or willing to use violence in their struggle. Did you ever feel that that was the direction that the British black power movement should take?
1: No, because they're two different society. I mean, America, is a violent society. They were very violent physically to black people. I mean, don't forget, that is a country when a black man looks at a white woman. He will charge for eye rape. I mean, how can you charge somebody for high rape? And they were hanged stretched out their necks, hung by on the trees. In Britain, we didn't have that. But you can compare it because Britain was a different situation. I mean, the violence we suffer from individuals, and from the police, was all part of um, how the society was. But we were not like America.
0: And what would you say led to the end or the demise of the Black Power Movement in Britain?
1: Well, the Black Power Movement, at least, has made a lot of people become more conscious of what they situation was, because there's a lot of English people who didn't realize or didn't know very much about what the British did in the colonies. And I think that was one of the reasons why the Black Power Movement was so interested in history, because it showed and brought out certain aspects which a lot of people didn't know
0: about. And I think they should continue to do that. What do you think is the main legacy that was left by Black Power activists from the 60s and 70s?
1: Well, the struggle hasn't finished, so we don't know what the end of the, end of the product would be. It continued, it still continues because you're still having rights today in Britain. And a lot of discrimination taking place, and look at what happened in Tottenham just two, three years ago. It's still there, it hasn't changed. It's but more subtle now as it used to be. But I mean, the racism still exists and the hostility between the police and especially the young blacks now still exists. Look on Carnival Day, look how many people are arrested and 99% of them are blacks. So the situation hasn't really
0: changed. Do you think radicalism has been lost in Britain?
1: Yes, I think so, because the present generation, don't forget. These guys, present generation, was born there for all intents and purposes. They are British. They don't know any other culture. They don't know any other lifestyle. This is what they were born into. This is what they accept. This is what they were taught. And that's how they are living. And they will abide and do things according to how they see it which is
0: being done by other people or their other colleagues and friends. And do you think the British Black Power Movement and activists such as yourself get the recognition and credit that you deserve for your contribution?
1: Well, when we were fighting for independence and fighting for freedom, we weren't fighting for recognition. I didn't fought for recognition. I just got involved because of the situation that I found myself living in. And um, I did my best, to the best of my ability. I made my contribution. And I hope that there are other people who will make a contribution too. And let's build a better society and a better country for everybody to live in.
0: And today, would you say you're still involved in the anti-racist struggle?
1: Oh yes, I'm still, because (laughs) I tell you something, tell you something. When I was coming to Australia last October, the taxi driver, Who was driving me, recognized me and was talking about Hyde Park. And when I told him it was me sitting in the back of your taxi who was using the speaker, he rang his friend on the phone from the car in Belgium to tell him that I was there with him sitting in his car. Oh, yes, people still recognize me wherever I go.
0: And this is just a personal question now, but in Australia, what is the experience of race relations over there? Is it similar to Britain? Worse? Or any better?
1: No, it's not the same. They look comparison. Australia has a different problems with it between the Aborigines and the government. and um, They have their own problems.
0: So in the UK now, do you continue to uh, attend Speakers' Corner? Do you teach? What's your involvement today?
1: Well, I'm all I'm involved in the Black History Month because um, when I get back, I do a lot of lectures on Black History Month, and um, I I didn't go to carnival for the last two years because most of my my colleagues, most of my compatriots have passed away, and there's nobody I know personally who is actually actively involved in carnival. So I am taking it a little easier than I used to before, but
0: I still do a lot of lectures if I to do it. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, that's all my questions answered, so I want to thank you very much for sparing me your time because I know it's late over there, so thank you.
1: Well, good luck in what you do, and I hope you succeed, and um, you must watch YouTube and you get all the speeches there.